Welcome to the Biner Family Speaker Series, a podcast dedicated to high-level research on contemporary anti-Semitism by fostering productive and collegial discussion of the most pertinent issues before us. Hosted by the Indiana University Institute for the Study of Contemporary Anti-Semitism. For more information about this speaker series, ISCA news, or videos of past webinars, please visit our website at isca.indiana.edu. And now to present our speaker, Dr. Alvin H. Rosenfeld. Jeffrey, hi. I'm happy to add my welcome to Gunter. It's good to see you again, if only over Zoom. We greatly look forward to what you'll be telling us uh, today about Israel's founding. Next year is a special birthday, 75 years, and there's lots to feel good about. an extraordinary achievement, no question about it. However, as you will soon put on display before us, not everyone was so happy at the time, and there was a good deal of controversy about Israel's founding. It won the support of many, there was opposition to by others, etc. And all of that is relevant, in fact, unfortunately, for much of what we're facing today, with regards to new forms of hostility or altnoi forms of hostility, I guess I, I should say old and new forms of anti-Jewish and especially anti-Israel hostility. Um, Jeffrey Herf is distinguished university professor of history at the University of Maryland, where he's taught for a number of years. He's the author of numerous important historical studies published by the leading presses in the world, Harvard, Yale, Cambridge, etc. I'll single out just a couple of these because I always draw them to the attention of my own students when I teach courses that overlap with Jeffrey's research. One is called Divided Memory, and it deals with the division between the two Germanies on how people in those countries looked back on the Nazi past and passed on what they wanted to pass on about it. Uh, That book was published in 1997 and is a very pertinent text to this day for its subject. The Jewish enemy Nazi propaganda during World War II and the Holocaust, which Harvard brought out in 2006, a similarly important book, which I also draw to the attention of my students, as I do to a follow-up work that Professor Herf has published called Nazi Propaganda for the Arab World, which appeared with Yale in 2009. There are other titles as well, which I won't take time to draw your attention to, but they all show the solid scholarship and very engaging prose of a master historian. In addition, uh, Jeffrey Herf is one of the leading commentators on today's anti-Semitism. He keeps up with events and everything he has to say about them is worth your attention. Uh, Jeffrey, thanks so much for being with us today. I'm happy now to hand over to you. We look forward to all you have to tell us. Alvin, 
thank you very very much for that uh, that in, in informed and uh, and generous introduction. I'm, I'm, I appreciate it a great deal. Uh, Gunter, let me know uh, if the audio uh, is sufficient and uh, if there are any technical issues. Uh, the anti-Semitism over many centuries involves telling lies about the Jews um, and some very famous lies. Uh, and the issue of whether, um, uh, whether something is true or false regarding Israel is an important question for thinking about contemporary anti-Semitism. Uh, and the book I published in the spring, uh, Israel's Moment, International Support for and Opposition to Establishing the Jewish State, 1945-49, examines uh, widespread myths and misconceptions uh, about how and why the state of Israel was established. Central to those myths is the idea that the state of Israel was a product of, of British or American imperialism, uh, that it was imposition by the West, uh, uh, by the two leading uh, powers of uh, global capitalism. And uh, second, that the Zionist project was racist at its core. Uh, and the, these two misconceptions uh, were uh, found global uh, diffusion in the United Nations, especially since the 1960s. And then having played a role in world politics, they filtered into the academy. And so there is more than one syllabus uh, on courses in the United States uh, that expresses the view that the establishment of the great state of Israel was an enormous sin uh, that involved the expulsion of, uh, of the native inhabitants uh, and uh, uh, and therefore is a sin that needs to be undone. Uh, now, the, uh, the realities of 1945 to 1949, and especially 1947 to 1949, are completely different, totally different. And uh, I think in order to address the question of contemporary antisemitism, that, that uh, this series of uh, webinars and lectures uh, that uh, Alvin Rosenfeld and uh, Gunter Gikeli have done so much to uh, uh, conduct to address the question of contemporary anti-Semitism. It's indispensable to look at what actually happened in the late 1940s. Um, so Israel's moment refers to a very brief period of May 1947 to May 1949, when the leaders of the leader of the Soviet Union, Joseph Stalin, and the president of the United States, Harry Truman, both supported the establishment of the Jewish state in former British Mandate Palestine. And Israel's moment is about this famous and short-lived agreement. But uh, I, at the University of Maryland, my office is a mile from the National Archives of the United States. And so I have, the, have had the great advantage of being able to work in the archives without plane flights and hotel costs. Um, the book draws on 
examination of the files of the United States State Department, the Department of Defense, but also of the United Nations, the Foreign Ministry of France, and France's Ministry of the Interior. France plays an important role. And of course, the British Foreign Office. Uh, it also rests on examination of liberal and left-leaning journalists and political activists and politicians in Washington and New York. And the core finding of its 500 pages, I wouldn't describe Israel's moment as an easy read. It's not beach reading, um, but, uh, but it's a good read. And there's a lot of compelling stories. Uh, the core findings are fourfold. First, while President Truman's support for the Zionist project was crucial, the support of the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc was even more consequential. It was evident in diplomatic battles at the United Nations. It was evident when the communist regime in Czechoslovakia violated the United Nations arms embargo and sent arms to the Jews when they needed them most in the 1948 war. And when the Soviet bloc facilitated Jewish immigration to free state Palestine and to Israel. The window of opportunity for the establishment of the Jewish state was brief, and it was made possible, first of all, by the Jews in Palestine themselves, but also in Europe, the United States, and all the other countries around the world by fresh memories of the Holocaust and of the anti-Nazi passions of its immediate, in its immediate aftermath. Israel was established at a turning point in global politics when the alliances of the Second World War were giving way to the very different and sometimes reverse coalitions of the early Cold War. The Zionist project emerged between the binaries of communism and anti-communism, West and East. And this fact confounded decision makers in Moscow, Paris, London, and Washington, key, the key centers. Uh, but it was understood very well by two monumental figures of world history who are unappreciated, far too unappreciated, uh, uh, in contemporary discussions, and that is the future prime minister of David Ben-Gurion and uh, the foreign minister, the future foreign minister, Moshe Sherrod. The two of them, uh, in my view, having uh, done the work on this book, emerge as some of the very significant political figures, both for their courage and insight in world history, not just in Jewish history. The second theme is that Due to the understandable attention devoted to Truman's support for the UN petition resolution and his decision to recognize the state of Israel, historians have not paid sufficient attention. We have not paid sufficient attention to the I'm going to I want to stress this emphatic, resolute, persistent, and consequential opposition to the Zionist project. Opposition to the Zionist project from the United States State Department the Department of Defense, and the Central Intelligence Agency. Israel's moment presents more evidence than has appeared in the scholarship of the past about the anti-Zionist consensus that emerged at the top of the United States national security establishment, led by former five-star general, now Secretary of State, George C. Marshall, probably next to Harry Truman, the most widely respected and famous figure in American public life, George Marshall, and an opposition articulated by the first director of the new policy planning staff, perhaps the most famous American diplomat of the 20th century, George F. Kennan. These leaders viewed the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine 
as a threat to American and Western access to Arab oil resources, and as a boon to prospects for Soviet and communist expansion in the Middle East. And therefore, these leaders of the American national security establishment, along with the British Foreign Office, viewed the establishment of the State of Israel as a threat to American national security interests in the first months of the Cold War and the global policy of containment of the Soviet Union and communism. The association of Zionism with communism and the Soviet Union was not just something that was evident in the reports of American ambassadors from the Middle East. It became a consensus at the top of the, national, of the Anglo-American national security establishment against which President Truman uh, was alone, albeit powerful voice. Third, though support for the establishment of the Jewish state in the United States encompassed both the Democratic and Republican parties, uh, the, uh, and there was, a, re there was a, a very different Republican party than, than, than its current iteration. The loudest and most persistent voices in the political realm and outside the formal organizations of the Jewish community and synagogues came from the most prominent liberal politicians in American politics, from prominent liberal and even leftist intellectuals and journalists. And these figures included Senator Robert Wagner, Congressman Emanuel Seller, Assistant Secretary of State Sumner Wells, journalists, Frieda Kirchway, the editor of The Nation, I.F. Stone, famous left-leaning, left-liberal journalist, uh, and other articles in left-leaning dailies, such as the, um, the newspaper PM, the New York Post. Um, and um, uh, this liberal, left-liberal, uh, journalistic, political gathering uh, denounced the Nazi collaborationist past of leaders of the Arab Higher Committee, the leaders of the Palestine uh, uh, Arabs. And they viewed the establishment of the Zionist, of a Zionist, of a Jewish state in Palestine and this is extremely important. They viewed the establishment of a Jewish state in former British Mandate Palestine as part of a global era of anti-colonialism, a global era of anti-colonialism, as a struggle against British imperialism, as the logical continu continuation of the anti-Nazi, anti-fascist passions following World War II uh, and the Holocaust. Uh, and they rejected the accusations that there was a connection between the Zionist project and Soviet and communist expansion in the Middle East. Now, after 19, the fall of 1949, when it became apparent to Stalin that Ben-Gurion and Sherat and the Zionist leadership were not going to be tools or instruments of Soviet expansion in the Middle East, in other words, that Stalin's bet of 1947-48 had not turned out as he hoped, the Soviet Union launched its anti-Semitic, anti-cosmopolitan purges in Europe and embarked on an unfortunately enormously successful 40-year propaganda campaign to reverse the realities of 1945-49 to or 47-48 to in particular, and instead to spread the falsehood that the United States was, quote, to blame for Israel's emergence. The Soviet Union uh, became silent about the evidence of Soviet and communist support for the Jews and Israel, 
and it spread the consequential falsehood that Israel was a product of U.S. imperialism. In the United States, the importance of the Soviet era support for the Zionists and the realities of opposition in the power ministries of the United States government was lost. Lost in public memory, lost in also in a great deal in Jewish memory. Uh, in an exaggeration of the importance of Harry Truman's decision-making and a minimization of the impact of opposition from the national security establishment. And this, despite the work of Israeli historians such as Yuri Bialer and Shlomo Slonim and others. Um, uh, the non-reading of Israeli historians is a significant uh, dilemma. And one of the things that I hope Israel's moment does is to bring their excellent work to the, to the attention of a broader audience in the United States. Um, so the, um, there's another point to be made um, uh, regarding, uh, and I'm a historian of modern Germany, and as, as Alvin so kindly pointed out, uh, the author of Nazi propaganda for the Arab world, and I've thought a lot about, uh, written about uh, the after effects of Nazism in, in the Middle East. Um, one of the themes that, uh, that my late colleague, uh, Tony Judd, who unfortunately uh, passed away much, much too young. Uh, 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 but uh, Tony's work in Europe uh, uh, was about uh, the, um, the amnesia that accompanied uh, the emergence of Europe after the war. And that's a theme that we German historians have discussed in, at great length, uh, amnesia and forgetting about the Nazi era. And oftentimes when people speak about that, they think about uh, the, the various figures in Germany uh, who were able to avoid justice, this despite the Nuremberg trials and others. Well, the other point was that Europe told itself a, a fairy tale about how everybody was brave and the country was filled with resistors and uh, the continent was filled with resistors and it had a way of forgetting collaboration. The fact of collaboration. Espandeak and Tony Judd and Jan Gross written a great deal about uh, uh, collaboration. Well, one of the most famous and consequential collaborators with the Nazi regime was Hajim bin al Husseini, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. And I argue in Israel's moment that the absence of a post war trial of Husseini should be understood as part of this chapter of the early Cold War of amnesia and forgetting of the Nazi past as the alliances shifted and the West focused on the threats from the Soviet Union and communism. Uh, a trial of Husseini in those years would have brought to world attention the enormous evidence gathered by Britain and the United States, and of course, probably, perhaps as well uh, by the Soviet Union, about uh, uh, Husseini's collaboration with the Nazis, his visceral uh, Islamist Jew hatred, and it would have made it much more difficult for this terrible man to have revived his political career and to have become the leader of the Palestine Arabs in the post-war years. It would have made it more difficult for the Arab Higher Committee uh, to represent the Palestine Arabs. And perhaps, and this is the what if, one of those what ifs of history, uh, perhaps uh, had there been such a trial, uh, the, uh, a more moderate leadership might've emerged uh, among the Palestine Arabs uh, who then would have accepted the UN partition plan of 1947. Alas, that did not happen. Um, I'm a historian of Germany, but I had the great good uh, fortune of working in the French National Archives in Pierrefitte and the French diplomatic archives in La Corneuve. The French government had Hajim al-Husseini 
under house arrest from May of 1945 to June of 1946. And they were pleas uh, from American liberals, American Zionists, uh, uh, to uh, indict him uh, for his uh, collaboration activities and put him on trial. And uh, the documents of the French Foreign Ministry indicate that the um, uh, that the French government concluded that it would be much better for French colonial interests and French national power political interests in North Africa and in the Arab world to get on Husseini's good side and to treat him leniently uh, rather than deliver him to Nuremberg or to or to Yugoslavia where there was talk about a, a war crimes trial. Uh, uh, the French diplomats concluded that uh, if they were delivered Husseini uh, to trial, there, there would be a wave of hostility in the Arab countries. So here again, here again, I want to ex accentuate this. The French foreign ministry, like the British foreign office, like the US State Department concluded that sympathy for the Zionist project would undermine French colonial interest, French post-war interests in North Africa and the Middle East. One of the great propaganda coups of the last 50 or 60 years is to have reversed these realities and somehow present the Zionist project instead as exactly what it was not, uh, uh, that is a colonial project. Uh, my colleague at Maryland, Paul Landau, has written a very fine book called Mandela and the Revolutionaries about Na Nelson Mandela. I'm not going to go into that. But Paul points out that the younger Nelson Mandela was a great fan of the Irgun and, um, uh, and of the battle that the Jews waged against British colonialism. Uh, this is not something that South African leftists these days may want to hear, but the younger Mandela uh, was also, a sympath also sympathetic to the anti-colonial dimensions of the Zionist project. Uh, the, um, another myth, a consequential myth, is that Zionism was a form of racism. Uh, those of you who are listening, who are familiar with the history of Zionism, know that the Zionist project had nothing to do with racism. It was a, it was a product, uh, a movement that emerged in opposition to racism. Uh, uh, the leaders of the Palestine Arabs in 1947 and 48 were racist. And the accusation that Zionism was a form of racism was an example of projection. In January of 1947, and then again, in September of 1947, Jamal Husseini, the cousin of Hajamin Husseini, Jamal Husseini, the representative of the Arab Higher Committee at the United Nations, uh, and the Arab Higher Committee, like the Jewish uh, 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 Jewish agency, uh, had representation at the United at the United Nations. Jamal Husseini spoke both in London and then again in New York. And this is what Jamal Husseini said um, in London, and he repeated this United Nations. The Arab world is a territorial continuity inhabited by a homogeneous population with one national outlook. As such, it is free from serious frictions and a natural bulwark for peace. Homogeneity in race, Jamal Husseini said, Homogeneity in race has always been the natural basis for mutual understanding and community of interest. 
The creation of an alien Jewish state in Palestine means the destruction of this territorial continuity and national homogeneity and the creation of a running sore that will undoubtedly become a permanent source of trouble in the Middle East. Europe, he said, had wars because of its um, multi, uh, multi-ethnicity, its diversity. Homogeneity in race was a formula for peace and stability. These speeches by Hajim and al-Husseini were known to the United States State Department. They were delivered, his speech at the United Nations was delivered publicly. How many of the 130 people who are now listening to this call have ever heard of Jamal Husseini's homogeneity in race speech compared to how many of you who have heard the idea that Zionism was a form of racism? Myths and realities. Myths and realities. One of the great accomplishments of the Palestinian Liberation Organization since the 1960s has been to repress the memory and the history of its own racist foundations and to instead project those views onto the Zionists, an enormously successful propaganda campaign. Israel's moment tries to set the record straight. Andre Gromyko, became one of the leading figures in the history of the Soviet Union in um, the post-war period. He became the foreign minister. Uh, before he was foreign minister, he was head of the Soviet delegation to the United Nations. And there he um, offered a mix of power politics and, uh, and I think genuine uh, uh, anti-fascist passion. Uh, he surprised the United Nations and the State Department in May of 47 when he declared that the Soviet Union preferred a binational state of Jews and Arabs living together, but if that was not possible, or if one or, one or more of the parties rejected it, the Jews, uh, 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 then the Soviet Union would support a two-state solution. The Jews accepted it, the Palestine, uh, the Arab Higher Committee rejected it. Uh, it was official Soviet policy. Law when, when the United States had not yet decided to support the partition plan, the Soviet Union in May of 47 decided to support the partition. Uh, Israel's moment also recalls uh, the views of Alfred Fedorkiewicz, a Polish ambassador to the United Nations, who stunned his fellow diplomats at the United Nations when he told them that he was a survivor of Auschwitz-Birkenau and that he had seen in person the Jews being murdered. And that as a result, uh, we cannot forget this mass tragedy with the memory of this mass tragedy deeply ingrained in the mind and soul of our nation, Poles. We are interested in the fate of these displaced persons, et cetera. So uh, Israel's moment includes that moment of anti-fascist passion, was the Soviet Union playing power politics in 1947-48 in supporting the Jewish? Of course it was. Of course it was. It was attempting to drive Britain out of the Middle East. Uh, 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 Stalin was anything but a saint, of course. Uh, but there also, when one looks at the United Nations records, whether it's Gromyko or Fedorkiewicz and, 
um, uh, in a few moments, Ukrainians represent, Ukraine's representative Vasil Tarasenko, you can see the fresh memories of World War II uh, and uh, the memories of the, of, of the Holocaust. Um, I don't have time to go into the discussion of the French interior ministry. Suffice it to say that in 1945, 46, 47, the socialist uh, party controlled the interior ministry and a coalition government. Edward de Preux and Jules Mock were influential figures. And the, and the interior ministry in Paris was working closely with the Mossad in order to facilitate, quote, illegal Jewish immigration to Palestine when the British Navy was doing everything it could to prevent it. So uh, Arya Kohavi at Haifa University has written about this, and I elaborate on it, that the French interior ministry drove the British foreign ministry to distraction. They were furious at the French for facilitating Jewish immigration. Um, uh, that is the origin uh, of a story that goes beyond Israel's moment, and that is uh, Israel's most important ally of its first two decades was not the United States, it was France. Uh, and the, the, the emotions, the passions, the interests that, that, that uh, went into that alliance, both political and military, uh, begin in the interior ministry in those years. But let's turn now uh, uh, to the Americans. The core um, of opposition to the Zionist project came not only from the United States, but it came especially from the British Foreign Office. Uh, and it was led by Foreign Minister Ernst Bevan, one of the decisive figures of the early Cold War and of left-wing left-of-center anti-communism in Europe and a key figure in the history of the special relationship between the United States uh, and Britain. Uh, the, um, the timing of things is important to keep in mind. In March of 1947, President Truman, in an address to the joint session of Congress, articulated what, he, what came to be known as the Truman Doctrine, uh, expressing uh, support for uh, uh, American opposition to the expansion of communism, uh, and that the United States would take the lead in doing so. Um, the um, uh, that it's um, uh, in June of forty-seven, June fifth, George Marshall gave one of the probably the most famous commencement address uh, uh, in the history of Harvard University in which he articulated what became known as the Marshall Plan. Uh, that is the American support for economic reconstruction in Europe, especially uh, Western Europe, in order uh, to prevent the expansion of Soviet influence there. Uh, so the, the spring of 47, with the Truman speech and the Marshall speech and the policies associated with it, is the beginning of the American policy of containment of communism. And it's exactly in those months, in May, uh, that the UN first discusses the Zionist issue and uh, that the Zionist issue then emerges. And momentum in public opinion was growing. The Exodus affair is in July, August of 47. And so the emotions and the heartstrings uh, in, in Europe, the United States for these poor refugees who are on these ships, the British won't let them land, et cetera. The momentum in public opinion is growing and growing uh, in support of the Zionist project. And Ernst Bevan is very, very worried at that point. And uh, the book examines conversations and, and memos between 
Ernst, uh, Ernst Bevan and George Marshall and the American and British diplomats uh, uh, that summer about how to reverse this momentum. Oil. Oil is central to this history. William Eddy was a special appointee appointed by Marshall. Eddy was a former ambassador to Saudi Arabia, a former consultant to the Arab American Oil Corporation, Aramco, and Marshall appointed him to be a special assistant. And in September of 47, Eddy wrote a memo <clears throat> to Marshall attacking uh, support for the partition of Palestine into a Jewish and an Arab state, as had been proposed in something called the United Nations Special Committee on Palestine, or UNSCOP, that summer. And the Eddy memo uh, is uh, crucial uh, uh, because it strikes a nerve uh, with, um, with others, including Loy Henderson, the, who was director of the African and uh, Middle East Division. Uh, and then uh, in uh, September and October, there is a meeting of British and American political military leaders in Washington called the Pentagon Talks. And the Pentagon Talks are uh, of great importance for the history of uh, Anglo-American opposition to the Zionist project. Uh, the, um, a typical memo from those talks reads as follows. The essential fact is that because of clear Soviet aspirations in the Middle East, which you fulfilled, would have a disastrous effect, not only in American interests in the area, but on our general position vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union. It is essential that Soviet expansion in that area be contained. And uh, the containment of Soviet expansion in the Middle East uh, requires opposition to the Zionist project uh, in the minds of the political and military leadership. Uh, uh, George Kennan, who already, because of his famous article, Mr. X, on uh, containment, the sources of Soviet conduct in 1946, was already very famous and very highly regarded. Uh, uh, the Kennan memos of January and February of 1948, I examine in detail a report by the policy planning staff on the position of the United States with respect to Palestine, focused again on access to oil and the danger of Soviet pressure. And in, our, in my comments today, I don't have time to go into uh, uh, detail. Suffice it to say that the important thing is not only what Kennan said regarding the connection between Zionism and communism or Zionism and Soviet interests or, or Zionism and, and, and oil uh, access, uh, it was not only what Kennan said, but it was that Kennan said, not Loy Henderson, not William Eddy, not some right-wing kook, uh, not some anti-Semite, but the most highly regarded, deeply respected American diplomat of then and, and, and for many, many decades later. And Kennan put his brilliance and eloquence uh, to the task of explaining why it was in opposition to the national security interests of the United States for a Jewish state to be established in former British mandate Palestine. Um, uh, uh, the, in the spring, in the fall of 47, Loy Henderson uh, proposed that the State Department impose an embargo on arms to the Middle East, 
that embargo was, well, the idea was accepted by Kennan and Marshall. It was proposed. And the United States skillfully used its position on the Security Council to turn the American proposal of an arms embargo into a UN proposal of an arms embargo, and the arms embargo was imposed. Uh, uh, so no weapons <clears throat> were supposed to come from any member of the United Nations to any of the countries in the Middle East. But the point is that, that the Arabs were already countries. They already had governments and defense ministries and sources. of The Jews did not have a state. The Jews did not have, and what they needed desperately, desperately, were weapons. So none of those weapons, none of those weapons came from the government of the United States. Yes, there were efforts by American Jews to uh, smuggle a few things, but the decisive uh, weapons came from those that the Israelis, in their small arms industry then, had been able to create. And then in the spring of 47, from communist Czechoslovakia. Uh, the, um, uh, just a few, uh, a, a comment about Vassal Tarasenko because of the war in Ukraine. Uh, the evil Mr. Putin, uh, evil Mr. Putin uh, has uh, justified his, his war uh, with the canard that the Ukrainians are Nazis. Um, and uh, uh, there were Ukrainians who collaborated as well uh, during, during the Holocaust, we know that. But what he didn't want to talk about was Ukrainian anti-fascism um, or the role of the Ukrainian Communist Party led by Nikita Khrushchev uh, in the war against Nazi Germany. One of the Ukrainian anti-fascists of that time was a man named Vasil Tarasenko. And Vasil Tarasenko was the Ukrainian ambassador to the United Nations in 1947 and 48. And because, of the because chairs rotated, uh, Ukraine happened to be a Ukrainian SSR happened to be on the Security Council in the summer of 1948. And so there you have Vasil Tarasenko and Andrei Gromyko on the one hand, butting heads with uh, 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 Warren Austin and, and, the, and the British representative, his name escapes me at the moment, butting heads about some, uh, some um, uh, uh, um, about UN resolutions proposed by uh, uh, Count Bernadotte. Uh, in the summer of 48 during the war. And, and again, I don't have time to go into details, but the Bernadotte plan was a plan that would have deprived Israel of the Negev desert, uh, about 60% of its territory. And the British and the Americans were pushing the Bernadotte plan, um, uh, again, trying to limit Zionist gains in hope of occurring favor with the Arabs. And Tarasenko uh, 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 gave eloquent and emphatic criticisms of the Bernadotte plan. Uh, and uh, uh, again, in the spirit, both of power politics, we're not, this is not child's play, but also you could feel and hear in his words, the, the fresh memories and passions of, of anti-fascism. Let me conclude with a note about an anecdote about David Ben-Gurion. And I repeat, I think David Ben-Gurion is one of the monumental political figures of the 20th century, right up there with Churchill, right? Roosevelt, right up there. Uh, not just a figure of Jewish history, though certainly he is. In May of 1949, after the war, the Arab states and the, Palest and the Palestinians were refusing to sign a peace. They didn't want to end the war. 
But they did insist that the refugees be allowed to return immediately. And the State Department was accepting that position and was pushing the Israelis to do that. Uh, and they got Truman to sign a letter to Ben-Gurion saying, in effect, if Israel didn't change its position, the United States was going to, quote, reevaluate its relationship with the state of Israel. Uh, 1949. And uh, James McDonald had been appointed by President Truman as the first ambassador to Israel, and he was, he was a, a Zionist. He was on very good terms with Ben-Gurion and Sherrod. And he had the unhappy task of giving this memo to Ben-Gurion. Uh, and Ben-Gurion read it. Uh, and uh, uh, it, it, the memo said, after all that we've done for you, and here they're thinking about Truman's recognition, after all we've done for you, we have a right to say uh, that Israel should change its policy. And here is, here is James McDonald's note about David Ben-Gurion about American policy in the last two years. The partition resolution was never carried out by the United Nations, the United States. It contemplated two states, Israel and an independent Arab Palestine. Um, but the United Nations did nothing to enforce it, nor to prevent aggression by Syria, Egypt, Lebanon, and Iraq. And instead imposed an embargo, uh, which encouraged the aggressors against Israel, whose very existence was in danger. And then Ben-Gurion said this to James McDonald. Had Jews in Palestine waited on the United States or the United Nations in 1947 and 1948, Ben-Gurion said they would have been exterminated. Israel was established not on the basis of the partition resolution, but on a successful war of defense. And Truman's note today is unjust and unrealistic, for it ignores the war and the continued Arab threats. That's what David Ben-Gurion really thought in 1949. So those who despise the state of Israel view it as a product of American imperialism. And they continue to spread that falsehood. But there's a certain romance in the American Jewish community about the extent to which the United States actually supported the establishment of the state of Israel. The president, of course, did. And his, it was a heroic stand against the entire national security establishment. He couldn't fire Marshall or Kennan or Lovett or Forrestal. That was not possible. They were launching the Cold War together at the same time. Um, but uh, the State Department kept its distance. It kept its distance and uh, kept its distance for two over two decades. And the American alliance with Israel, the real consequential American alliance, began after the Six-Day War, after 1967. So uh, that's it. Uh, I, I hope that people will, will read this book and uh, that it will come as a cold shower to a lot of people um, because the ideas, the myths about how Israel was established and who supported and who opposed it and why uh, have, have embedded themselves in world politics, in quote, human rights, 
organizations uh, and unfortunately uh, in, in parts of the academy. So as a historian, uh, all, all I can do to counter this is to um, present the evidence and hope that people will pay attention to it. Thank you.